0: <laughs> Good evening my little trick-or-treaters. I see you've come looking for a scare. Somewhere you can be horrified. Well, you've come to the right place. As your host, I'll be taking you through a guided tour of funhouse terror. Haunting tales brought to you by some of the most twisted minds in podcast land. Some of these stories are terrifyingly true, while others have been brought to life by an electrifying imagination. But be forewarned, this episode isn't for the light of heart. So close your curtains and lock your doors and settle yourself in for a night of terror. Welcome to our ghoulish 2017 Halloween special. <laughs> Tale called The Princess comes from the host of creepy John Grills.
1: The Princess. I've been watching you. Do you remember? I used to play with your daughter. I played with her and watched you. I was with her when she gave you her first drawing of me. By her wishes, I was given a pretty pink dress to wear and a crown atop my golden curls. I smiled as you hung my picture on the fridge. Your daughter was a wonderful artist. While you shouted at him in the kitchen, I soothed her and stroked her hair. She was my girl, and I loved her when you didn't have the time. I remember the empty bottles of whiskey that marked the day he left, and many days to follow. Often I would remind you that such habits were bad for your health, but you didn't listen to me. You never listened to me. I was sitting with her when you gave her that glass of water. I remember that it smelled wrong. As she coughed and choked, betrayed and devoured by your poison, I was helpless. I watched you wait until you knew it was too late before driving her to the hospital. I was in the back of the car with her when she drew her final breath. Only I could see through your teary facade when they laid her in the ground. So why do you look at me with such fear? Why do you tremble? I am no stranger to this home. I've been with you all along. And I have awaited this moment for a very long time. Your tears dampen the carpet. The rope came from the garage. It was a bit thin for its intended use, but it would be enough. A lady should be able to make do in a pinch, after all. One end adorns your neck, the other is tied up to the ceiling fan. You could be whispering your prayers, but you're not that hopeful. With the flip of a switch it whirs to life and the rope tightens. It doesn't lift you, but rather forces you to crane your neck and stare at the whirling blades above you as you gasp for air. Your bulging eyes meet mine one last time and with a voice of destitute you gasp, barely audible. Why? I smile. You hang. Justice tastes sweeter than I ever dreamed it would. Sweeter yet, knowing you did it to yourself.
0: Tell me this, will you ever look at a child's toy the same? Now here's Scott, from the podcast, Fairy Tales for Unwanted Children, and his story, The Dog Dies at the End.
2: We found the body six days after we moved in six days of boxes and painting new job jitters and Newlywood. let's call it frivolity we hadn't expected all the change to pile up at once but it was richie's dream job so we left the city our family and friends behind and embarked on this adventure together i don't like change i never have but richie pulled at my boundaries there were trips where i'd be doubled up on the toilet hikes that left the trail, rivers that should never, ever be rafted. My stomach... My stomach doesn't like stress. But for Richie, I'd do anything. The house was small, with a deep, narrow lot that went back towards the forest. Plenty of room for the dog, no privacy from the neighbors. Small town. I've always lived in the city, so even if there wasn't stress from the move, I'd still have been knotted up with the idea of it. People aren't as homophobic in the city. Or if they are, they know how to hide it. Maybe that's just my bias. But the neighbors gave us a lot of those looks. The oh looks. The oh he's not your brother looks. Richie was more eager to face the yard work, but my knees are older and I've never had to mow a lawn before. The yard was an overgrown mess of shrubs and weeds fallen branches and hints of what used to be a garden, a perfect match for the rest of the houses along the street. We'd let Shelly out and she'd disappear into the chaos of it, rummaging and chasing, barking madly at God knows what. The neighbors didn't like that, but they didn't seem to like much. Shelly found the body first, and Richie had to hack a path back to her. We thought the dog was hurt the way she was going, barking and growling, digging at something. There were homeless people in the forest, the neighbor said, but careful about the forest. We thought maybe she'd run into one of those. And she had. Just not the way we thought. I heard Richie swear ahead of me. Oh shit, he said. Richie didn't swear. Richie never swore. I was tangled on an overgrown rose bush when I heard it and stopped. We all stopped even the dog. My shirt tore as I pulled towards them. It was never meant to be a work shirt and it tore like tissue. But Richie never swore and it was important I be there for that. Whatever caused it would be a story to tell and I was missing it. The police showed up quickly. They had to hack a wider path to get the stretcher in. They brought their own shovels. Saturday afternoon, most of the neighbors came out to spectate, many I'd not yet seen. Richie made the rounds, said the hellos, told the story as we saw the body come out in a black bag on a stretcher. Homeless, an officer said. Not much to tell, said another. But there was a lot to tell, and Richie was telling it. I went inside still holding Shelly's collar because I didn't want to hear it again. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw it, the mottled skin, the shapelessness of it, the tears and rips where Shelly had dug at it. But it was never really buried. Not all of it. Only from the waist down. Shelly pranced around the bathroom door, still wet from being hosed down in the yard. My bowels were water. I gave up on the yard. Richie still pictured a tub and fences, a nice green lawn and mosquito netting, but for me it was a graveyard. There wasn't an investigation. They didn't come back to take down the tape. There's a lot of mental health issues that come with homelessness. We were city people, so that was no surprise. But it gets dark at night in small towns. You close your curtains because the windows are black voids. Streetlights are very far apart, and the headlights that rake across your rooms are so rare that they become events instead of just the background hum of a city. When someone walks along the street at night, you watch them, because the dark is vast and empty, and walls are thin, and glass can break, and doors aren't the only way in. And as dark as it was, the forest was darker, a wall of nothing that creaked and moaned. Shelley stayed on leash because she was fearless, always pulling towards the trees, and bringing things back. There were a lot of bones. The police stopped caring about them. Deer mostly, dog or maybe wolf. The tiny skull of a rabbit. Richie collected them, finding corners of the internet that could tell him what they were. He let Shelly run, and when he did, he was the one to meet her at the door because I couldn't do it. With me, she was on the leash, and I was on the porch, shining a flashlight into the tangled dark and listening to the crackles The snaps and the sudden silence of crickets. One night, Shelly pulled away, leaving her collar and leash behind as she dashed into the cold. Richie was pulling late nights, establishing himself, building that first impression. I had macaroni in the microwave. Shelly was bounding through the neighbor's yard, barking the way she had, growling the way she had. I almost didn't go after her. I had to think about it. This one was buried up to its chest. I was shaking so bad I couldn't stand. I tied the dog to the back of the house, I didn't even hose her down. I called 911 and barely made it to the toilet. His chest. Buried up to his chest. The yards were full of floodlights. An officer pounded at the door, but I couldn't answer it. Richie raced home, and he was out there until past three. An officer walked the yards with Shelly to see if she'd find another one. I finally went back out with a coffee pot and a tray of mugs just in time to see the bag being brought out on a stretcher. But it wasn't right. It was the wrong shape. There wasn't enough of it. I asked Richie if they were still digging, but he said they weren't. They found everything that was there. Richie was home by dark after that. If he wasn't, I'd be sitting in his break room with the dog, watching CNN and eating from the vending machine. The police were flushing out the forest, finding the camps. Most of them empty, abandoned. The stories people were telling, you didn't know what to believe. Mental health can do bad things, but so can gossip. And people were scared. Still, they didn't find as many homeless as they expected, but there were empty camps. Richie was pricing bars for the back windows, but I was pricing condos in the city. My job was still open. We could go back, but Richie said no. His new job, he said. Our house. The forest was empty, he said. We'd put up a fence. We had kids come in from the high school. They spent the long weekend pulling out everything from the yard. Shrubs and branches, old bikes and fridges. They cut it back and mowed it down, but when night came, the curtains were closed, the locks were checked, and a chair was pushed against the door. But still, it was there. The black silhouette of the forest looming like a wave that would come down and crush us all. I didn't need to see it because I could feel it. No matter how many lights were on, no matter how loud the TV blared, I couldn't even take the dog out on a leash to the porch. Richie did it all. Richie wrapped his arms around me on the couch. Richie leaned against the bathroom door. It'll be all right, he said. Nothing's happened in weeks. There's nothing in the woods, he said. I'd lie awake and listen to him snore, trying not to hear the sounds of the house shift in the wind or the snap of branches from the trees or the sudden silence of the crickets. One night, Shelley got away again. I was watching Jeopardy, potpourri for 500. I heard the barking as she dashed away and Richie's yell as he set off in pursuit. The flashlight was on the coffee table. He'd forgotten it. I almost didn't go after them. I had to think about it. I stepped out into the cold night. Jumping the beam of light towards the growling. Richie was calling her name somewhere out there crashing through the neighbor's yard. But I couldn't find him. I was off the porch, but only just. I called his name. I yelled his name. The neighbor's lights flicked on, sending a sliver across his yard, and there was Shelley, white in the darkness, staring at me, confused. And then Richie went silent. Instantly. One moment yelling, and the next, nothing. The most horrible silence I've ever heard. And Shelly, standing there, just staring at me like a ghost in the sliver of light, I felt empty. I screamed Richie's name, but there was nothing. I called to Shelly, and she whimpered, looking back into the dark. My flashlight couldn't reach what she saw, but suddenly she was bounding towards me, ears back, terrified, and the ground was moving. Under her, the ground was moving, heaving. I stumbled back and dropped the flashlight as Shelly ran into the darkness between the houses and I steadied myself against the railing of the porch. Shelly's paws were pounding in the black. And then silence. Sudden silence. My eyes were locked on where she'd be. That spot where she'd burst back out into the light from the kitchen. But she wasn't there. Nothing was there. I grabbed the flashlight and jerked the beam towards her just in time to see the last of the white fur disappear into the ground. Pulled down. Disappearing. I ran. I didn't even think about it. I was running. My knee gave out on the road, but I pulled myself up and kept running. No one ever found Richie, but you don't care. I loved him, we loved him, (laughs) and you don't care. This is the internet, so he doesn't matter. There's something out there, but all you care is that the dog died at the end.
0: So what have you taken away from that tale? Will you only remember that the dog died at the end? Now here's Haley from the Murder Road Trip Podcast.
3: It was a cold, silent night. The wind whistled and howled, its gales rasping against the glass windowpane. A waning crescent hung from the pitch-black sky, shrouded in the blue-tinted gray clouds. I stared through the telescope, my mind full of wonders as my gaze met with the moon. Dormount was such a pretty village at night. Within my room, posters and photographs were affixed to the walls, displaying constellations, galaxies, skies, suns, moons, and stars, all of which were my passion. From the ceiling, a solar system sent light flowing into my room. A sound, a low grumble. It opposed the usual night sounds of doormount, which usually consisted of cricket songs and rustling tree branches. And then, I realized the sounds must have belonged to Mother's voice, coming to check up on me. I leapt into my bed sheets, switching off the lights in such a quick sequence I had forgotten I had ever done so. Mother would kill me if she caught me awake at this time of night again.
1: Activator
3: footsteps the grumble I had heard earlier sounded once again except this time I could interpret them as faint words was mother talking to someone but who we were the only ones who were here since father was at work as far as I knew lightning flashed it sent light flooding into the room lighting up my reflection in the mirror opposite me in my bed.
1: Not a wife, but deeper.
3: The sound grew louder. No, closer. A screeching sound caused my eardrums to throb with pain. It was so loud it was unbearable. It was as if metal was being dragged across the floorboards, coming closer and closer. Closer and closer. By now, I began to call out, Mother? Is that you? But my voice was overcome by the metallic screeches. Now it was clear to me someone was singing a melody of some sort. It was too masculine and low-pitched to be my mother's voice, though who else could it be? Paranoia ached through my bones, dreading the thought of a stranger inside my own home. The screeching got louder. My heart beat furiously against my chest, as if trying to escape the girl that held it prisoner. Each of my breasts were shaky, whilst every part of my body trembled in uttermost fear. I bit my lip. For some reason, I couldn't convince myself everything was okay. I couldn't convince myself it was anything but danger. I couldn't function. I was too afraid, afraid of what was behind the door, of what was singing this eerie symphony. Another flash of lightning sent shivers down my spine, lighting up the mirror across the room. But in the brief showcase of my reflection, I wasn't alone.
1: Peter Pumpkin, Peter,
3: Peter The words were unmistakable. Not only that, but something had been standing in the doorway. I had been sure of it. My inner instincts told me to hide, hide beneath my bed sheets and quilts, build a fortress of pillows and never leave. But I was frozen. Frozen still in the unnerving, uncomfortable position that I always try to avoid sleeping in. The sound of multiple throbbing heartbeats echoed constantly in my mind, always there. Slam! The sound of my window shutting. My stomach twisted and turned inside my body as each word entered my ears. At this moment, I leapt out of my bed, shuffling to a corner of the room. I clung onto my teddy bear tightly and began to cry, as any 14 year old would do. Father, if you're playing a trick on me, I swear! I yelled, my voice cracking and shattering as it left my throat, interrupting myself. An unnerving silence gave me time to lift the tears shrouding my sight, and there I saw a shadowy figure, standing still in the darkness, lighting lit the yellowish-white silhouette of a toothy grin.
1: You each other?
3: This line stood out from the rest, as if the man before me was telling me my fate. He whispered it in an eerie tone, staring down at me with one hand gripping the axe, the other gripping the scissors. Peter, Peter the Pumpkin Eater. Those were my final words, despite the fact I am sure I was not the one speaking them. Pumpkin Eater Police Case, 6th of June, 1986, Log Number 143. The case on the 14-year-old victim, Janice Brafford, and her 39-year-old mother, Mary Bradford has finally been concluded each of their corpses has been found together in the chimney of their own home. It seems the pumpkin eater, who is usually known to cut up his victims and stuff the remnants into pumpkin shells, has more than just one method of killing. This time, it seems the two corpses were tormented with a sharp, unidentified object as their eyes were gorged out along with the daughter's tongue. Then, the two must have been forcefully shoved up the compact chimney and secured with barbed wire, perhaps even alive, for it would seem they both suffocated on soot before dying of blood loss. The idea of them being alive has been sparked from multiple scratches seeming to have originated from human nails in the insides of the chimney. Both victims had multiple, uneven broken nails to support this theory. No clues were left behind for us to know who the killer was. It may not even be the pumpkin eater, but it seems to be too a similar case to not relate somehow.
0: Peter, Peter, Pumpkin Eater, had a wife and couldn't keep her. Now Dennis Sierra from the Evil Podcast presents Amanda.
4: We are social animals. Our survival has been a direct result of our need for each other. Before our modern-day technological discoveries, we survived for centuries in city-states and smaller communities who lived together for security. Before the discovery of agriculture, we banded together in small nomadic hunter-gatherer clans, assisting each other with hunting various animals and surviving the dangers of a hostile prehistoric world. Now we have cities whose population reaches in the millions. People everywhere you look. Yet you can sit in a coffee shop in the heart of a city with dozens of people around you chatting and socializing and be utterly alone. This is where Amanda had found herself. Again, sipping her mocha latte with skim milk in the middle of a coffee shop and having no real contact with anyone. Amanda would frequent the coffee shop practically every day as everyone was coming home from work. In a way, it had become Amanda's only true socializing event. All the conversations around her were the background noise of a solitary existence. Amanda would come to the coffee shop to people watch and listen to them interact with each other. She would envision herself included in their conversations. Amanda would imagine that her witty comments would solicit laughter from her conversation companions. The type of laughter that requires a quick hand to the mouth to muffle its volume in such a public place. Amanda's fantasies would often draw her in. So much so, she would find herself acting out and mouthing imagined conversations in the middle of a crowded coffee shop. This, talking to herself, would sometimes garner a sideways glance from a bewildered and real occupant of the coffee shop. Amanda would respond by lowering her eyes and taking a sip of her coffee, sometimes checking her phone just to verify no messages had been received. Amanda had fun pretending to be one of them. It was fun to imagine having friends and being the interesting one in that tight circle. It would be fun to share dark secrets that only close friends dare. But Amanda had no one to confess her dark secrets to. No circle of friends to confide in. Amanda envied these sheep as they had each other. She was among them, but not one of them. Amanda knew a wolf can only wear the lamb's wool for so long before it begins to itch. Eventually, the beast has to reveal itself. Today, Amanda could feel it behind her eyes. Usually, Her willpower was enough to maintain her cloak of normal. However, today the beast was just below the surface. As she quietly sipped her coffee drink, the monster inside was crouched like a lion in tall grass. It was on the hunt. Like any predator, the beast inside was observing the herd and picking out the weakest members. Of course, the herd was unaware. They milled about drinking coffee and feeling safe among each other. Amanda felt sorry for most of them. So much so, she would suppress the beast and let it go hungry, burying it deep inside while pretending to be normal. However, it had been a full moon cycle since the monster last service, and Amanda could only cage it for so long. From behind, Amanda's eyes it surveyed the crowd and would whisper to her, That one. It said as she spotted an elderly woman moving slowly with a well-used walker. Amanda turned her head away as she could feel the hungry beast salivating. Amanda wiped her mouth on her napkin and looked towards the coffee counter. There was a young man in a well-decorated letterman jacket standing in line. He wore a cast on his lower right leg and had a crutch tucked under his right arm. He moved well, but was obviously slowed by his condition. The beast within whispered, That one. Amanda turned away and looked towards the door. There she saw a little boy about four years old wandering away from his mother. The inquisitive boy was exploring his environment. His mother was waiting in line while texting on her phone. She was paying so little attention to her rambunctious little boy. That one? The beast whispered again. This time it was more intense, more anxious. Amanda's stomach audibly groaned above the chatter of the busy coffee house. She wiped the drool from her mouth again and stood up. At this point, it was challenging to keep the beast subdued. Amanda could feel her temperature rising and the perspiration was forming around her collar. Amanda walked with purpose towards the door. As she passed by the coffee counter, the rambunctious little boy stepped in front of her. He stood there for a moment and greeted Amanda with a warm, kind smile and an outstretched hand. He was willing to make a new friend. She could hear the beast moan from within. Amanda licked her lips and swallowed the excess saliva forming in her mouth. The beast within begged, "'Take his hand. Offer him candy. Offer him toys. Offer him anything. "'Take his hand. Take him outside, away from the herd.'" Amanda could smell the chocolate on the little boy's breath. He had ate a candy bar earlier this afternoon, and its scent lingered on him. She shuddered as the monster pounded against her mental cage. It was desperate to feed Amanda knew the bars of the cage were loosening under the growing appetite of the beast within she stepped around the boy and walked towards the door the little boy pouted and began to step with her Amanda tried to silently shoo away the boy as she continued to the door the boy walked beside her until her mother snapped at him at which time the boy ran back to his mother. Amanda dashed out the door and walked at pace down the street. She could feel her fingernails hardening and elongating. Amanda's vision quickly adjusted to the darkness. The cage was weakening. Her breath frosted in the cold October air as her breathing became deep and heavy. Amanda turned down an alley and extended out her left arm to brace herself against the wall. The transformations were always painful. The scent of garbage and urine became stronger. In the dark alley, Amanda heard three rats rummaging in a nearby dumpster and the accelerated heartbeat of a feral cat observing them from above. With her hands still bracing the wall, Amanda bent over and spewed her digested mocha latte to the ground. Her claws dug into the wall and scratched the brick surface. Amanda knew the fight to stave herself would end the way it always had. Minutes later, the scent of two-day-old cologne on an old dirty wool coat drifted into the alley. Amanda was still leaning against the wall with her head down. She heard the sound of careful footsteps approaching her from behind. Then, muffled by a heavy coat pocket, she heard the click of a spring blade a few feet from her. Amanda raised her head and whispered, This one. The
0: person in the alley approaching Amanda with the knife soon learned the crime doesn't pay. The next harrowing tale is told by Robin Warder from The Trail
5: Went Cold. If you grew up celebrating Halloween, you probably have vivid memories from your childhood. About being told to watch out for dangerous people who might be handing out poison candy or apples with razor blades inside them. But this story is the polar opposite of that. What if the people handing out the candy were the ones who found their lives in serious danger? Well, this exact scenario occurred with an elderly couple named Marvin and Ethel Branlin on Halloween in 1982. Marvin and Ethel had been married 46 years and lived in the town of Fort Dodge, Iowa. For some reason, on this particular year, trick-or-treating would take place on the evening of October 30th rather than the 31st, possibly because the 30th was a Saturday. Marvin and Ethel spent the night handing out candy as usual to children including their own granddaughter, Teresa Trueblood. While walking away from the house, Teresa remembered a lesson she'd been taught about not answering the door for trick-or-treaters after 7.30, and thought about turning around to remind her grandparents about this. But she decided not to return, unaware that her grandparents would be opening the door to a very dangerous individual within the next few minutes. The Brandlins heard another knock on their front door, and when they opened it, they were surprised to find an adult male standing there. He was dressed in blue jeans and a plaid shirt, and wore a pillowcase with eye holes over his head as a mask. The man said, Trick or treat, give me your money or I'll shoot. The Branlins figured this was some sort of practical joke so Ethel attempted to lift up the pillowcase, but the man held it down. When Ethel turned around to reach for the candy, the masked trick-or-treater entered the house and pulled out a 32 caliber handgun before ordering the Brandlins to take him to the safe they had downstairs in their basement. Marvin and Ethel led the masked man into the kitchen toward the basement door. But Marvin was still convinced the whole thing was just a stupid Halloween prank. He decided to reach for the man's gun, only for him to retaliate by firing off a shot directly into Marvin's throat. The assailant then turned around, ripped off his pillowcase masked, and fled the scene. Ethel immediately called for help, and Marvin would be airlifted to a hospital in Des Moines for surgery. but he died on the operating table within a few hours. He was 69 years old. Ethel would never be the same after the traumatic ordeal of witnessing her husband get murdered and died within a few months of what her family described as a broken heart. Unfortunately, even though the killer had pulled off his mask, Ethel did not get a good glimpse of his face but she described him as being around 5 foot 8, between 16 and 20 years old, and having blonde hair and blue eyes. What really stood out about the killer was the fact that he ordered the Brandlins to take them downstairs to their safe. Very few people knew the couple even had a safe in their basement, and most of them were family members. Rumors would circulate that an acquaintance of the family had bragged about committing the murder. He became the prime suspect, but there was just no hard evidence to tie him to the scene. The only piece of evidence which could have proved useful was the pillowcase mask, which the killer left behind at the scene. During the early 1980s, investigators did not have the luxury of DNA testing, but they finally decided to submit the mask to the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation in 2009. Unfortunately, there just wasn't enough usable material on the pillowcase to make a hit, so the investigation went back to square one. Even though a lot of people believe they know the identity of the mass trick-or-treater who murdered Marvin Branlund on the night before Halloween in 1982, the case officially remains unsolved.
0: Thank you, Robin, for reminding us that you can never be too sure who you're opening your door to. If that wasn't enough to worry you, gather around for this haunting tale by Sammy from The Encrypted Podcast.
6: On Halloween of 1988, six teenagers ventured into a tunnel on a local railroad only one escaped with their life in a photo. What resulted from that innocent venture was a two-year period of unexplained murders which killed off a good 10% of my small town's population. To this day, no one knows the true fate of the five boys and the reason behind the murders that lasted until the fall of 1990, except for me. I'm the lone survivor of the six who encountered the wanderer on the tracks on that dark Halloween of 1988. It was supposed to be a simple dare. There was nothing to it. Everyone had heard of how every Halloween, people head into the tunnel and never come out. We all thought it was bullshit. Then again, we were only 14 and not very well learned in the way of the paranormal. All we expected was just some crazy dude in the bed sheet. However, What we found was much worse, and what we did made the outcome 10 times worse than it could have been. I guess that curiosity killed the cat really fits when remembering this story. It was me, John, Andy, George, Bill, and Fred. Explaining our costume of choice is irrelevant. However, let us know that we all brought flashlights, and Andy brought a bucket to collect candy in. Full of shandy. I remember your death so vividly. It haunts my dreams to this day. And she does too, but not for long. We all had dinner at John's house as it was closest to the tunnel. After that, we played some Super Mario Bros on his NES to pass the time until it was dark. When it was, we all departed to complete the dare we so foolishly accepted. I carried a Polaroid to show everyone what was really in the tunnel. We left when it was considerably dark outside Most of the dads were parading their seven-year-olds up and down the street getting candy before it got really dark. There had recently been some kidnappings in the area, but we didn't expect to meet the suspect, so we thought we would be safe. With each step towards the tunnel, it seemed as if it got darker. And when we arrived, it was pitch black, and it was pretty much only us and the older trick-or-treaters outside. We all stopped at the entrance of the tunnel for a moment, realizing that we might not make it out alive. After waiting one more moment, we hesitantly stepped inside, turning on all of our flashlights. No one really wanted to do this. We felt this more and more as we went deeper into the tunnel. It was weird though. Usually a tunnel ended around 500 feet, but it seemed like this one went on for miles. We went on for what I would say was another 3,000 feet. That's when we saw it. At the time, we had no idea what it was. And if I had a choice, I wish I would never had found out what it was and what it did. The fuck is that? Bill asked, half whispering to the rest of us. What we saw looked like a girl who had covered herself in dark paint or makeup and had on plain old nightgown. She was holding what we thought looked like a rod or staff, and her back was facing us. Beats me, Andy shrugged. Hey! He yelled at the thing before throwing the bucket at it. It climbed off the creature and rolled to the right of the track. Suddenly, it made the most gruesome noise in the world as its head rolled 180 degrees to stare back at us. I hastily took out my Polaroid and shot a picture of it. I put away the camera and shook the developing picture before putting it inside my pocket. Everyone was frozen in place looking at this creature, seemingly paralyzed. Soon, the creature lifted the rod and threw it at Andy. It was horrifying and amazing seeing it throw what we now knew was a spear with such dexterity as well as doing it backwards. The spear struck Andy in the chest, dead center in the sternum. His rib cage collapsed and blood sprayed from the entry and the exit. His spine snapped and he crumpled to the ground. The blood splattered spear was stuck in the ground a good 40 feet behind us. It was only a moment before we actually thought to run. We didn't even try to save Andy. I turned my head and saw the creature ripping open his chest, tearing muscle and organs apart as our dying counterpart screamed in his death throes. It seemed like the creature wanted to separate flesh from bone as it exactly what it had done. Andy's flesh and innards were scattered all around his skeleton in the pull of his blood, and it was coming for the rest of us now. Bill was the next one to get caught, eviscerating him in the same manner as it did to Andy. Then she got George, and then Fred. It was me and John left. The creature was so close we could feel its putrid breath on our necks. We both heard its demonic growls and screeches as we just barely escaped the furious grabs along those stones. We kept on running even though the lactic acid had built up so much in our arms and legs and our breath was so ragged and we were so tired. Soon we saw the end of the tunnel. Somehow it was morning, which was illogical, but John and I were both so happy to see the light of day. Suddenly. I heard a trip and stumble. John had fucking tripped. We were outside of the tunnel and he tripped. I didn't even need to turn my head to know he was being gored and gutted. I ran a safe distance away from behind some trees near my house. His screams echoed through the neighborhood and woke several families, wandering outside to see what was happening. Everyone who went outside all saw their creature as it tore apart John. When it was done, it swept his eyes across the shocked citizens of my small town and let out a deafening roar that no man or animal can make. It then dashed back inside the tunnel and everyone ran inside their homes, including me. For two years after that, the people who saw the creature were found disemboweled and skinned in their homes. Some people tried to move, but I heard them say it was like they were chained here. The creature was holding everyone here, keeping everyone who had seen it captive in this town. I'm the last surviving person who saw the wanderer on the tracks, and my time is coming soon. How did I last this long? I don't know. I bet it's teasing me, torturing me. It's taken a hold on my life and I can no longer function like other people. I can no longer go out in the dark. My windows are always closed. The blinds are always down. The doors are always locked. I've tried to kill myself multiple times, but I can't. It won't let me. Recently, I've been hearing the dying screams of my dying friends. I've heard a bucket clanging from outside my window, tapping on my front door at night. It's a sign. It's coming for me soon.
0: We should all take our parents' advice and stay off the train tracks. And now we'll hear from Lily. From 36 Times.
7: The Strange Mrs. Dandridge by Andrew Ashdown. Mrs. Dandridge had been one of a dozen old ladies living in the row of terraced hoses known to the post office as Honey Bee Avenue, but to everybody else, it was known as the Hive. She was presumably a widow, although Mr. Dandridge had been dead such a long time that nobody could ever remember seeing him. At one time, she had been friendly with the other older ladies living on the street, but her reluctance to invite any of them inside her own home and her extreme reticence about standard subjects, such as the degenerate youth of the rest of the town, with the notable exception of some grandson or another, or the influx of a small Polish community that had threatened to overthrow the natural order of things, meant that she had experienced a gradual ostracization. The year before she died, in the manner of Outsiders the world over, she'd instead, become the subject of Lord Gossip. The nosy Mrs. Beasley said that she had seen Mrs. Dandridge wandering around her back garden at an ungodly hour in some kind of haze, muttering strange things to herself. What Mrs. Beasley was doing looking into someone else's garden at this time was not discussed. The magnificent Mrs. Cole said she heard strange noises from one of the upstairs windows. In the manner of an actress who really knew her audience, she refused to elaborate further. She simply raised an eyebrow and repeated, strange. The excitable Mrs. Allen had confirmed Mrs. Cole's story and added that at one time, she had seen a green light blaze suddenly from the spare bedroom for a few seconds. But Mrs. Allen was known to be a tad imaginative. The final nail in terms of approval came a week before. A large package had arrived from Mrs. Dandridge, and when there was no answer, the postman had delivered it to Mrs. Allen next door and pushed a note through the letterbox. Mrs. Allen, whose active imagination had been running riot after every discussion of Mrs. Dandridge, couldn't resist this opportunity to find out more, and opened the heavy box to have a look-see. Inside was an extremely large, extremely ancient book, with a set of symbols unlike anything Mrs. Allen had seen before. The lettering and pattern seemed to weave together and shift on the cover, and after a few seconds, Mrs. Allen's head began to hurt. She couldn't take her eyes off it. A furious hammering at the door interrupted her trance. A full quarter hour had passed. A wild-eyed and wild-haired Mrs. Dandridge stood on the doorstep. "'You didn't open it!' Mrs. Allen's eyes widened in indignation. "'Certainly not!' Mrs. Allen did not expect to be accused of such things on her own doorstep. The fact that she had was beside the point. "'Give it to me!' It wouldn't hurt to say please, thought Mrs. Allen, as she hastily shut up the lid and awkwardly carried it to the front door. Mrs. Dandridge's interrogative tone had vanished and had been replaced with a vague, dreamy look. Thank you, my dear. And she was gone. A week later, a heat wave had struck. Mrs. Cole's dutiful grandson, Paul, had been visiting his grandmother and her friends in the way all good grandsons should, telling slightly risqué stories and pouring the tea, flattering Mrs. Allen. He was on his way home when he caught the edge of a very strange smell. Paul had never been around a body before, so he had little idea that, left in the heat, the smell becomes overpowering in a confined space and leaks out the windows and doors to pollute the street. He approached the house that seemed to be the source. Unable to get any response from knocking and remembering that this was Mrs. Dandridge's house, a woman he had found odd but not known well enough to form the concrete opinions of his grandmother, he went around the back and found the door there ajar. Curiosity and concern overcoming trepidation, he pushed it open and went in. The smell was overpowering, invading his nostrils and seeming to coat him in a layer of grease. Acutely aware that he was potentially trespassing, he called out. Mrs. Dandridge! She wasn't downstairs. He began to ascend. Mrs. Dandridge! The smell was worse on the landing. He pushed open the door to the spare bedroom. Mrs. (sighs) Dane. The tableau before him was in many ways simple but it took his eyes several seconds to process it. The simplicity itself underlined the stark, revelatory sense of horror he experienced. A mirror was at one end of the room. On it had been scrawled a series of symbols and patterns in what was now a brown, flaky substance. In front of the mirror was an emaciated corpse a mummy that had been carefully dried out and preserved, lovingly so. This was later identified as the late Mr. Dandridge. In the far corner, a pizza delivery boy sat upright, with an expression that showed that he too was surprised by the cut going across his throat. In the middle of the room, a large book was opened to a horrific image of a demon that seemed to shift on the page. The two-dimensional drawing seemed to have its own depth, and the mocking expression of the creature itself seemed to stare straight into Paul's soul. Finally, there was Mrs. Dandridge. The medics would later nervously reassure Paul that the expression of exquisite horror frozen on her face suggested that she had died of a massive coronary heart failure, rather than fright. Apparently, it was common. Paul could only hope that was the case. He was confused, however. Heart failure was an explanation he could grasp onto, but there was something that kept him up at night. Something he couldn't voice, but he would remember to the end of his days. The anxious smiles of the paramedics couldn't cover the fact that, whatever the strange Mrs. Dandridge had seen in those last moments, whatever had ultimately led to her unseemly demise, whatever had left that haunting look on her aged face, whatever it was, It had taken her eyes along with it.
0: Heart failure or fright, you be the judge. Now Mandy from the Moms and Murder podcast brings to you this spine-tingling tale.
8: It was the year 1887 in Dresden, Germany, when 10-year-old Carl Tanzler awoke from a strange dream in which his dead aunt, Countess Anna von Kossel, appeared to him with a girl whom she said would be Carl's one true love. From this day forward, Carl would be plagued with visions of the dark-haired beauty and would carry the memory of these visions into his adult life. In 1910, a young Carl moved to Australia, where he stayed until the end of World War I, studying weather patterns. Upon returning home, he married a woman named Doris Anna Schaefer, with whom he had two daughters, Aisha and Crystal Tansler. The family emigrated to the United States in 1926. They sailed from Rotterdam to Havana, Cuba, before reaching their final destination in Zephyrhills, Florida. Despite the fact that he was married to another woman, Carl remembered the lovely lady from his visions. He believed that one day she would come into his life and that they would live happily ever after. Carl accepted a position as a radiologic technician in Key West in 1927. And when he moved there for the job, he did not take his family with him. His youngest daughter, Crystal, was struck with a case of diphtheria and having little options for treatment for the infection, she eventually died. In 1930, while working at the U.S. Marine Hospital under the name Count Carl Von Kossel, a 22-year-old Cuban-American woman named Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos was brought in by her mother after exhibiting signs of severe illness. Carl instantly recognized Elena as the woman from his lifelong visions. She was one of three daughters of a cigar maker and was viewed as a local beauty in Key West. Elena was, at the time, married to a man named Luis Mesa with whom she had fallen pregnant and subsequently miscarried a child before Luis left her. Elena was eventually diagnosed with a case of tuberculosis which was typically a fatal disease in that time period. Almost all of Elena's immediate family succumbed to the same ailment. Carl was desperate to successfully treat Elena, but even though he claimed to have nine university degrees, he lacked the qualifications needed to treat a tuberculosis patient. He set out to cure her using a variety of unconventional methods, including specially made elixirs and tonics, x-ray and electrical equipment, all of which he brought to her home. He would shower her with gifts and profess his love to her continually, but she would never reciprocate the feeling. During her treatment, Elena received numerous marriage proposals from Carl, but Elena's sister insists that she never loved him, and what's worse, she viewed Carl as more of a grandfather figure. Despite his best efforts, Carl was unable to save her life, and Elena passed away on October 25, 1931, at the age of 23. Carl Tanzler was devastated and heartbroken. He quickly offered to pay for Elena's funeral and obtained permission from her family to hire a mortician to clean and fix up her body before placing it in her tomb. He had commissioned the construction of an above-ground mausoleum in the Key West Cemetery, of which he would be the only person to possess a key. It was here that he would visit Elena almost every night for the next two years. During his visits, he would serenade Elena's corpse with Spanish songs, and he began to insist that he could hear Elena's voice calling to him from the grave. Begging him to free her. He was eventually fired from his job for reasons unknown and abruptly stopped going to the mausoleum. Considering his general behavior up to this point, Elena's family thought it was strange that he would suddenly stop with the daily visits. But they had no idea that what had actually happened would be a lot more bizarre than anything they had seen from him before. One evening in April of 1993, Carl crept into the cemetery, pulling a child's red wagon behind him. When he arrived at Elena's mausoleum, his obsession with the woman took a macabre turn, and he removed her body from the tomb and used the wagon to wheel her back to his home. Satisfied with what he had just done, Carl began the work of preserving Elena's now two-year-old corpse. He used a coat hanger wire to secure her bones together, placed glass eyes into her eye sockets, and replaced her decaying flesh with wax-coated fabric and plaster. He then stuffed the body cavities with rags and completed the look with a wig that he made from Elena's own hair. Carl finished his project by dressing the body in Elena's own clothing and placing her mummified body in his bed. He would use copious amounts of perfume and preserving agents to conceal the odor and delay the effects of decomposition. Seven years later, Elena's sister heard rumors that Carl was sleeping with the remains and she confronted him about it at his home. She notified police and had Carl arrested. Authorities had Carl undergo a psychiatric evaluation, but he was found mentally competent to stand trial on the charge of wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization, and on October 9, 1940, he was made to answer for the charges. In a bizarre twist, Carl was released from custody, and the charges against him were dropped because of the fact that the statute of limitations for the crime had expired. Elena's body was put on display at the Dean Lopez Funeral Home and eventually returned to the Key West Cemetery, where it was placed in an unmarked grave to prevent further tampering. In 1944, Carl Tanzler moved closer to Zephyr Hills, near where his wife Doris lived. It is reported that Doris helped to support Carl in his later years. Having been forcibly separated from his love obsession, Carl used a death mask to create a life-sized effigy of Elena which he lived with until his death on July 3, 1952. His body was discovered on the floor of his home three weeks after his death. Rumor has it that Carl's body was found in the arms of the effigy he had created. It has been written that Carl had the body switched or that Elena's remains were somehow secretly returned to him and that he died with the real body of Elena Hoyos.
0: Well, it was pretty obvious that Carl had a hard time not taking his work home with him. Now Cambo from the True Crime Island podcast will now tell you about his experience on Australia's most haunted road.
9: I'd like to tell you a story about a spooky experience I had one night going home from work. It happened to me near the Wakehurst Parkway, maybe Australia's most haunted road. This road, which connects Narrabeen and Seaforth, cuts through the Garrigal National Park and passes Deep Creek Reserve which is like Australia's Lincoln Park, a place where bodies get dumped and people get murdered. It's only two lanes and there's no street lighting along most of its route. There are two ghosts that haunt this road at night. One is a Scottish nun who died 50 years ago on the road and the other, Kelly, a young girl who died in tragic circumstances in the 1970s. It said if you don't tell Kelly to leave your vehicle, she will run you off the road. There's been some bad shit go down at Wakehurst Parkway. Like in 1963, eight-year-old Graham Thorne was abducted from his home. After police found his school bag along the side of Wakehurst Parkway and more of his belongings strewn further up the road, his body was eventually found at Seaforth. In 1994, Richard Leonard killed Stephen Dempsey with a bow and arrow in the Deep Creek Reserve and dismembered his body before storing it in his freezer. In 1995, Frances Tazzoni's decomposing body was found further down Wakehurst Parkway. She'd been strangled by her ex-boyfriend. So let me get back to my spooky experience. I was doing a rollout of new computers for a company north of Sydney. This entailed me getting into the office at around 2pm to organise and advise the users that their PC would be upgraded that night. By 5pm, we would then start rolling out the new PCs and have it all finished by about 10pm or so. Next day, rinse and repeat. This day, I found the desk of one of the allocated users that were due to have their computer upgraded that night was vacant. His colleagues told me he wasn't in and will be back tomorrow. No big deal. We finished rolling out the allocation of new computers around 11 p.m. that night and as usual we would all hang out and go for a quick beer before heading home. Beers finished, I headed for my car. A 1974 Ford Fairmont two-door hardtop with 351 cubic inch or 5.8 litre V8. Same car like Mad Max drives and I noticed this girl, probably 20 years old, facing towards the passenger door and away from me. She looked like she was wearing a uniform from a bank. She was about 5'6", with shoulder-length brown hair. As I approached, I asked her if she was okay. She didn't turn to me, but just said, My fiancé forgot to pick me up. I told her I was going to town and I could give her a lift and she just nodded as I opened the door and she got in the car. I went around to the driver's side, got in and started the car. I drove off towards the Wakehurst Parkway. She just looked forward and I felt a bit awkward thinking she must have had a fight with her fiancé or whatever. Then I noticed the ring finger on her left hand was bent at 90 degrees to the left her engagement ring still on a finger i thought this was weird but everything seemed weird at this point we then entered the wakehurst parkway which at night is pitch black as there's no street lights i tried a bit of small talk and asked her her name but she just sat there eyes fixed to the front and she didn't say a word there's a set of traffic lights at a pedestrian crossing near the C3 church at Oxford Falls. At this time of night, there is never anyone crossing the road here, so it's always a green light. But on this occasion, the light was red. I slowed down the car and stopped, but I couldn't see any pedestrians at all. The girl then opened the door and said, this is as far as I can go, and got out of the car. The light went green and so I drove off thinking what the fuck is going on here? Too tired to worry about it too much. As I drove off I couldn't see her in my rearview mirror. Next day I walked over to see the guy that had had the day off previously so I could organise his PC upgrade. He was about 50 years old or so. As I spoke to him about the changeover I noticed a photo on his desk of a young girl and guy in each other's arms. They were both about 20 years old. The girl in the photo was the girl I'd picked up the night before wearing the same uniform. Now me, being foot in mouth guy, asked him if the guy in the photo was his son, as it did look a lot like him. He turned to me and I could see a tear in his eye and he said, no. That's me the day I proposed to my girlfriend 30 years ago yesterday, that night near the C3 church on the Wakehurst Parkway our car spun off the road and she died she still go up my spine over that happy Halloween from True Crime Island
0: thanks Cambo I really think you need to be a little bit more careful who you offer a ride to from now on And now Carol from Cold Case Notes brings to you this story of murder.
10: The scariest stories are often the ones that are true. Monsters are real, y'all. This case is from November 18th, 1987, and it features a Canadian couple by the names of Jay Cook, who was age 20, and Tanya von Kuhlenborg, who is age 17. This couple was on a mission to travel from Vancouver Island on the Coho Ferry to head for Seattle. They made a stop in Port Angeles, and then from there they would take another ferry. The whole reason for the trip was because the couple was on an errand for Jay's father. They were supposed to pick up parts for a furnace. This journey should have only taken two days. It was basically an overnight. And they would have been back the next day. They never did check in with the families. And according to Tanya's family, she was always very reliable and would call anytime she would be a second late. And that was back in the day of no cell phones. The couple never did check in with the family to let them know all was well. So by November 20th, 1987, they were reported missing. The search began fairly quickly, and during the search, the police were able to see that the couple did, in fact, take the ferry from Vancouver Island into Port Angeles. I found a couple of conflicting reports on whether they actually took the second ferry into Seattle. However, I will say that the latest police reports they seem pretty sure that the couple didn't make the second ferry. Tanya was quickly found on November 24, 1987, just days after being reported missing. According to Chief Deputy Ron Ponzero of the Skagit County Sheriff's Department, Tanya's body was found partially clothed. She'd been raped and murdered. We found some plastic ties that you would bundle wires together with laying alongside the road. We assumed that they were used to secure Tanya in the van. Tanya had been raped and shot. Jay still hadn't been found at this point. Quickly after, they found the van sitting abandoned in a parking lot in Bellingham, Washington, near a Greyhound bus station. Now, if you look at MapQuest... Bellingham is about three hours northeast of Port Angeles, heading back towards the Canadian border. The police also searched the area around the parking lot, and a couple of blocks away, they found more clues. They found more of these plastic ties, the keys to the van, Tanya's driver's license, and a half-empty box of ammunition. They even found a pair of surgical gloves. Since Jay's remains weren't located yet, the police were starting to be concerned that he may have actually been involved in the rape and murder of his girlfriend. And... They were straight up with the family and told them this. This concern wouldn't last long. His remains were found on November 26, 1987. He was found under a bridge where he was beaten and strangled. Jay hadn't been shot. According to Sergeant Robert Bart an officer with the Snohomas County, Washington, his hands have been bound with the same plastic tie wraps. We think the way Jay died was indicative of things that we've seen before inside the prison walls. And the things we found on Jay certainly raised a suspicion that the person or people who did this have been in the prison system before. Without telling you anything else, that's definitely a possibility. The police are really stuck on this theory that The perpetrator or perpetrators have been in the prison system. They won't say why, so I can only guess. They felt that the couple probably came across their killer on the secondary heading into Seattle. And that their real target the whole time was Tanya. She was a very pretty girl, and they think Jay was just simply in the way. So he had to be disposed of. Now, this is the part of the story that really creeped me out when I was a kid. Over the Christmas holidays, the couple's families started getting these weird greeting cards. These cards all detailed the murders of the couple and were postmarked from various states, including New York, California, and Washington. All were written by the same person. Fortunately, the police were able to recover DNA from the crime scenes. And with that information, they were able to find out that the person that committed the crime and the person that wrote these greeting cards were not the same individual. They did need to go ahead and rule out the card writer as a suspect, so they finally did find him. It turns out he was this transient who had mental issues and was in his 70s. They didn't find him until 2010. To me, it's surprising that this killer hasn't been caught yet, especially seeing as how there's evidence that this van was being driven around for several days after the murders took place. There should be plenty of evidence out there, and if in fact this guy has been spending time in the prison system, it's only a matter of time before he or she or they is finally put away and a match is made. This case is still open.
0: Those poor people who lost their lives. If only someone had seen who was driving that van. Carla, from There Might Be Cupcake, sent me this story of legend tripping. She went out on location at the Bunnyman Bridge and was supposed to follow up with me via text or email, but I haven't heard anything back from her.
11: Hi, this is Carla and you are listening to The Right Be Cupcakes. Uh, This is going to be a little raw because I am on location for the first time, so bear with me. All right. Here we go. Virginia is full of woods. Don't believe the Blair Witch Project. It is possible to get lost in America these days, at least in Virginia. In these isolated woods between the Virginian towns of Clifton and Fairfax Station, this was used to great advantage, and an asylum for the insane had been quietly housed there for some time. For the insane, and yes, perhaps also for just the dangerous and the unwanted as well. Sometime in the mid-20th century, this asylum for the insane was shut down. Some say for overcrowding, some say mismanagement, some say abuse of the patients. So the powers that be loaded up the patients into buses bound for nearby Lorton Prison, the only facility in that area of Virginia possibly equipped to handle their and the community's needs. During this macabre commute, one of the poorly maintained state buses, threw a rod perhaps, No one's quite certain what happened, or will admit what happened, but one of the buses crashed. Maybe the other bus drivers and guards didn't see, or maybe they did see and were afraid to stop. Many of the inmates, excuse me, patients on the wrecked bus tried to take advantage of the situation and escape in the chaos, but all were caught, except two. Douglas Griffin and Marcus Walster. For months, authorities quietly, secretly, search these forests that i'm in for these dangerous disturbed men but the only sign of human habitation in these isolated woods were several several cleanly skinned and gutted bunnies strung up in the trees and from the old disused railway underpass known then as the fairfax station bridge the authorities you see did not notify the public of the fugitives or or of this grisly evidence of their presence for fear of inciting panic. They didn't even tell the public when Marcus Walster was found, dressed and gutted like one of those bunnies hanging from this very bridge. They figured the location was remote, so they had the situation under control. But unbeknownst to cops, local teens used this Fairfax station's bridge as a private hangout. That Halloween night, teens who had no idea about any of this gathered at the bridge to drink and to make out. And the next morning, horrified local parents and shame-faced authorities found those teens hanging from this very bridge, cleaned and gutted, just like those bunnies and just like Marcus. No sign of Douglas Griffin has ever been found. But the story of the Bunnyman Bridge does not end there. Not only do local teenagers warn that if you spend the night at the bridge, you will hear screams. They warn that no one spending the night at Halloween at the bridge ever returns to tell the tale. Anyone who dares to reenact that awful night will end their days hanging from the bridge like Marcus... And like Douglas Griffin's bunnies, but believe it or not, the story of the Bunnyman Bridge gets worse. Twice, in October 1970, the esteemed Washington Post reported attacks and threats on locals near the area of the Bunnyman Bridge by a man wearing a bunny suit and brandishing a hatchet or an axe. On October 18, 1970, Robert Bennett and his fiancée were sitting in their car near the general area of the bridge. When a man wearing a bunny suit screamed at them about trespassing in his area, then he threw a hatchet through the windshield of their car. Forty-five years later, they were still so shaken They didn't like to discuss the incident. But when approached by the Washington Post, the woman's aunt verified that she vividly remembered the awful experience of combing glass particles out of the woman's hair. On October 29, 1970, Paul Phillips saw a man in a bunny suit standing on the porch of an unoccupied house near the, the Bunnyman Bridge. When this man saw Phillips watching him, he began chopping at one of the por- porch joists with an axe and shouting about other people trespassing on his land. Douglas Griffin or not, some man has taken on the legend as his own and believes himself to be the bunny man. Apparently all it takes to tempt him out of hiding is being near the bridge on an October night. I was able to get the GPS coordinates and directions to the bridge from Atlas Obscura, and I'm going to stay out here Announcing my presence by listening to podcasts without headphones. Um, I have some realistic rabbit game strung up in the trees near the bridge. A couple dangling from the bridge. If it's the same man, if, say, he was in his 20s in 1970, he'd be my dad's age. That's perfectly reasonable. If it's not him, then it might be an inheritor to the myth. Much like I think the 1970 bunny man probably self-inherited The Legend of Douglas Griffin. Once I draw him out, I'll capture them on film I'll share what happens next on my next episode. I'm going to stop recording this intro now and I'm going to upload it to Tyler of the Minds of Madness podcast who's agreed to publish it for me while I'm out in the woods. Thank you, Tyler. This is Carla for That Right Be Cupcakes and I will see you guys next week with hopefully the coolest legend tripping report ever. Happy early Halloween.
0: any information of Carla's whereabouts, please get in touch with us as soon as possible. Karen Stew, from Bless This Mess, a southern true crime podcast, has this story of St. Louis Cemetery number one and some of its haunting secrets.
12: Now, the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 in New Orleans is the oldest and most famous. It was opened in 1789, replacing the city's older St. Peter's Cemetery, which is no longer in existence as the main burial ground when the city was redesigned after a fire in 1788.
13: Now, among the rumored dead in the St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, we're just going to call it St. Louis Cemetery because adding Number 1 seems exhaustive at this point. It does. Um... Were are the voodoo priestess Marie Laveau, the notorious Delphine LaLaurie, and the devil baby of Bourbon Street. And these are gonna be our three main focuses in this story.
12: Manzelle Laveau was often called to the ornate mansion on Dauphine Street to delight and amuse a famous Creole family who lived there. The Buddha Queen had been referred to the ladies by a woman of the highest social standing in the city, which is none other than Madame Delphine LaLaurie.
13: Now, this Creole family was very well off, and they lived on, you know, the good side of town and everything. And they had a beautiful daughter by the name of Camille. And according to legend, when Camille came of age, she had many suitors. But to a great disappointment, all of them were Creole. And, you know, she was looking for a, you know, young, wealthy... American. American.
12: All her life, Camille had been envious of the Americans with their wealth, their fabulous homes, and their business dealing, which ended in profit that they flaunted everywhere. In her few visits to the American Quarter, Camille befriended the daughter of an American family... Josephine Brody, who often invited her to her home for tea and other activities.
13: At one of these outings and activities things, uh, Camille met the man that would end up changing her life and would gain a place in the haunted New Orleans history that we know today.
12: Now, the Brody's house guest was a Scotsman, and he went by the name of Mackenzie Bowes. Through his history, he obtained considerable fortune and how he obtained that fortune is very obscure
13: now the minute that Camille saw uh, this Mackenzie Bowes she was smitten she was all over it he checked off all the boxes he was wealthy he was good-looking and he was you know exotic and foreign being from a Scottish descent and her parents encouraged the, the, you know, blooming of the romance. They wanted them to get married. They were excited, hoping that there would be a union between their daughter and this uh, new suitor that she had met.
12: Not everyone was so delighted about this, because Camille had scorned all her Creole suitors.
13: And if you remember right, remember she had plenty of them.
12: And this pretty much embarrassed them and wounded all their pride. Now all of them pretty much turned their attention to other things and other Creole daughters. That is everybody except for Etienne Matthew.
13: Now crazy jealous Matthew went over to see Marie Laveau and see if he could get her to cast a voodoo spell or whatever on Camille to get her back. That's what he originally wanted was to get her back and she said I can't do this that's not going to happen. And he got real mad and slammed his fist on the, on the table and said, then I want her dead. Now to his surprise, Marie Laveau laughed at his request and said, you cannot know what you ask boy." she said. You will pay dearly for me to take her life. Are you ready for this? Now, when she made this offer, Matthew didn't put much thought into it, and he just made a split-second decision in anger and said, and I quote, Then make her suffer like she has made me suffer. She goes to the Americans to make a spectacle of herself. Make a spectacle of her for all to see. Marie Laveau spat upon the ground and stamped the spot with her feet and said, So let it be.
12: On a bright October morning, Camille became the bride of the Scotsman in the halls of the Great St. Louis Cathedral. Everybody in the High Society in New Orleans from both quarters attended this wedding and the celebration at the family home afterwards.
13: Now in a dark cupboard on St. Anne Street, and you can visit all these places if you go to New Orleans, they do tours and everything, just FYI. Uh, In a dark cupboard uh, on St. Anne Street, Marie Laveau worked her charm. It would be months in coming. But Matthew would have his revenge and would regret the day he asked it.
12: When Camille and Mackenzie returned from their wedding trip, the bride was already pregnant. woo <laughs> The couple settled down in a townhome on Rue Bourbon not far from the French Market. While her husband went about his affairs in the day, Camille spent hours planning the nursery that would receive her child. Nothing could dim her enthusiasm or quell her excitement, except for one occasion when she happened upon Matthew in the market.
13: Now, this meeting with Matthew was nothing good came of it. He had such a scowl and such a dark and intense look on his face that Camille thought she would faint and her mother had to call for a carriage to take her home. Now, after this encounter, uh, both Camille's mother and husband had horrific nightmares and they wouldn't tell Camille what they were, but they were both losing sleep over this.
12: Now, this greatly disturbed Adelaide, who was Camille's mother, and she sent for Marie Laveau. Within a half an hour, Marie was at the house. When Marie arrived, she told the mother, I believe the child to be in the greatest danger. This is what the ancestors are telling me. When Camille is confined and the time of her delivery comes, I alone should be called to midwife her. Otherwise, I fear there will be great evil laid upon this child. The problem is with the husband, you know.
13: Now, why Adelaide didn't really understand all of this and the meaning of it, the husband's the problem, you know, she agreed because she was concerned about her daughter. Now after some time passed, Camille was looking into her, her new ancestry that's going to be on her husband's side and she found out that they were Scottish lords called Strathmore and they came from a dark castle that was t- said to be holding the devil itself within its walls. Now this disturbed Camille, but soon she was going into labor and all of her attention focused on that. At that point, Adelaide sent for Marie Laveau.
12: Camille's labor was long and arduous, but Marie never once left her side. Mackenzie became more and more agitated and nervous because he wanted to be in the room, but Marie forbade it. Mackenzie ended up finally running from the home into the dark of night, never to be seen again.
13: Now Camille didn't survive the labor, but the baby did. Now the voodoo queen looked at them and told them to be prepared. She said, there is a curse upon this child and has nothing to do with your poor girl. This is the work of years of malice and someone who hated this child enough to bring the devil out of hell to curse it.
12: Then Marie Laveau rebuilt the bundle of the family laying in her arms. Everybody present gasped in horror.
13: Yeah, the baby had horns that were growing in. Its body was covered in scales. It had, instead of hands, it had like possum or raccoon type claws. But its genitals were formed fully so you could tell it was a boy. It also had dark black eyes that were described as looking like they came straight from hell. Now the family told Marie Laveau to take the baby because they did not want it. Well, she leaves into the night, and as she's leaving, she runs into Matthew, and he's hideously deformed, and he says, look what you've done to me. And she said, no, you did this to yourself. Your hatred for wanting Camille to die has caused this to happen to you, and Matthew was went off into obscurity and was never seen again.
12: On her way home, Marie thought that she would go by Madame Delphine LaLaurie's house. It is said that Marie Laveau and Madame LaLaurie shared care of the unwanted child between them. Sometimes the child would be kept with Marie at her home on St. Anne. At other times, Madame LaLaurie would play host to it. When Delphine LaLaurie was chased from New Orleans after a fire in her home led to the discovery of horribly mutilated, tortured and dead slaves, the care of the devil baby fell to Marie a duty she is said to have shared with her eldest children.
13: For a few years, the fact that such a monstrous being was kept in the heart of the French Quarter was a subject of continuous gossip. The pitiful and chilling wells were not of this earth, and whenever the rain would fall, it seemed the baby would moan and howl incessantly to great disturbances of the French Quarter residents.
12: One rainy day, however, there were no howls, and shortly afterward, the Laveau family was seen, all dressed in black, gathered in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, where they were laying someone or something to rest.
13: Could it have been the Devil Baby? Most people assume this to be the case, but if Marie Laveau buried the Devil Baby back in the 1800s, then what's howling and terrorizing tourists and locals alike all along Bourbon Street to this day?
12: Thank you for listening, and if you are in New Orleans, you can visit St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 and see if you run across Marie Laveau, Madame Delphine,
13: and the Howling Devil Baby of Bourbon Street.
0: A Howling Devil Baby? I think we need to stay clear of that cemetery. And now, Chris, the host of the Mad Scientist podcast, has this terrifying tale for you.
14: You ever heard of cryptozoology? The study of hidden animals that it is officially defined but often mixed up with talk of UFOs and aliens and other such crap. I'm fascinated more by those that are localized. You know, the ones that are first mentioned by some nut in some pissy little town as you get lost on the way to nowhere, and that don't suddenly have appearances all over the country. They always seem to have a kernel of truth hidden in them, and are most of the time far harder to explain away. Anyway, one in particular caught my eye that night as I trawled through old newspapers reports that my father had scrolled away in the attic. He, too, had lived with a fascination for the inexplicable, and had heavily researched legends and mysteries in the years leading up to his death. The paper I found was a yellowing copy of the Daily Journal of Elizabeth, New Jersey, dated October 12, 1966. Highlighted by my father was a small paragraph, almost as an afterthought, reporting that two boys, Martin Munov and James Yanchitis, had been harassed by a strange figure on their way home the night before. There was no real description, just a warning for anyone who had seen anyone in the strange area to report it to police. The article was titled, Who is the Grinning Man? Mr. Dental pauses to take a sip of water from the decanter between us. My dictaphone whirs softly in the silence. I wouldn't have taken much notice. I mean, the Grinning Man? That's got to be the worst name for a mysterious being since the melon heads of Michigan. But I found it odd that my father had been interested enough to keep the report so I dug. It took me almost a month after his death to clear that attic of old newspapers and half-completed scrapbooks, and in that time I found only one other mention of the Grinning Man, this time in a clipping from another 66 newspaper. It mentioned a fellow who claimed to have been stopped on the road by a tall man with a wide grin, who conversed without moving his lips. Interesting as it sounded, it wasn't exactly a lot to go on. Nevertheless, when we sold his house, I kept both the clippings, along with a few other mystery-filled scrapbooks found buried in the mess. Eventually, it was pure coincidence that I truly started investigating the question of the Grinning Man. I was reporting on Hurricane Eloise for the New York Times in September 1975, and had been sent to New Jersey City to compare the damages to those suffered in New York. My busy radar hadn't stopped itching. Finding myself with free time, I recalled that the first sighting of the Grinning Man had been in Elizabeth, not 10 miles from the city center. On a whim, I went in search of the two boys mentioned in the first of my father's articles. It took a while, but eventually I made contact with James yanchitis now in his early 20s, who agreed to meet with me. The story he told me was far more informative than the article had suggested, and far more chilling. Mr. Dental falls silent. After an extended pause, he reaches into his pocket and places a little cassette player on the table next to my dictaphone and thumbs the play button. It's a poor quality recording, and the voice that crackles out of it is quite young. Throughout, Mr. Dental doesn't say a word. We were walking home. It was dark, but the streetlights lit enough for us to see, you know? I was nervous. Mrs. Lloyd claimed to have been chased by a strange man in the area earlier that night, and while Martin teased me about it, I could see he was pretty freaked too. But I was the first to see him. Across the road and behind a fence was a tall hill that led up to the turnpike, and it was steep, you know, like real steep. At the bottom on the other side of the fence was just Scrubland, and in it was a figure. I remember hitting Martin and pointing at it. From what I could see it was a man, standing mostly in shadow, turned so that we were looking half at his back, half at his side. He was staring straight ahead, like at a house across the road or something. He didn't move when I stopped Martin, but when I pointed at him, he turned, slowly. As his bald head swiveled to face us, I noticed one thing immediately. He was grinning leering like really wide he pivoted on the spot and stared straight at us but his eyes were mist, massive and black martin was the first to move he took a step backwards the man didn't move just stared arms limply by his sides that was all we needed we bolted not wanting for him to climb the fence and come after us i glanced over my shoulder once as we ran it was like he hadn't moved but he was now on our side of the fence nor had his eyes strayed, staring at us, or his grin, wide, terrifying. The cassette crackles for a few seconds more before falling silent with a click. Mr. Dental slowly reaches out and picks it up, placing it back in his pocket. is struggled to say much more, but he did give me a basic description. Tall, well over six feet, wearing a dark green overcoat, But it was the face that was the most defining feature, the insane grin on a pale face that stuck into his memory and haunted him every night. As Mr. Dental pauses again, I can't help glancing around furtively myself. The room is empty, nobody but my interviewee and myself. The table between us is strewn with papers, all blank. Mr. Dental continues, I didn't sleep much that night. My imagination was running rampant. All I could picture was the man Yanchitis had described. When I closed my eyes, his grin followed me, and in all my dreams, he haunted me. But that was before I really knew what haunted meant. It happened two days later, as I pulled up to a gas station on the road out of New Jersey. By this point, Mr. Dental is becoming increasingly agitated. His hands are twitching, and his voice is increasingly strained, even frightened. It was dark, probably nine-ish, maybe closer to ten. I had just filled up and was climbing back into my car, when I noticed something in the laneway besides the station. The lane was dark, but a streetlight at the other end illuminated enough for me to catch a sight of a figure near the other side. It had its back to me, but I could make out that it was tall. Taller than me, and wearing a dark gray suit over a thin frame. It was bald, and even from behind I could tell that something was off, as though proportions were slightly wrong. Even with a sense of fear growing in me, I called out, I regret that probably more than any other decision I've ever made in my life. It swiveled, so suddenly, its face. Its face was wrong, white, long, with deep black holes where the eyes should be. But its mouth, it was grinning, a locked grin that was far too wide, far too big. Hands by its sides, it grinned at me down the laneway, but made no further move. After a few seconds, I glanced away, to look inside the station, see if there was anyone who could help me. When I turned back, it had moved closer. I hadn't seen it walk. In the second or so I had glanced away, it had advanced at least 10 feet. It now stood halfway down the lane in the darkness, still staring, still grinning. I crouched, never taking my eyes off it, and fumbled for the handgun under the seat of my car. I couldn't find it, and in my fear, I glanced away again. When I stood, pistol in hand, it was closer still. It stood, grinning, not twenty feet from me at the entrance of the laneway, facing total darkness but for the eyes boring into mine, the grin fixed and horrifying. I couldn't help it, I yelled and fired my gun, the bullet hitting it straight bang in the stomach. The damn thing didn't react, it didn't make a sound, didn't even twitch as the bullet hit it. In terror I unloaded the clip straight in its chest, it was like nothing had happened. Screaming and crying I leapt into my car, rammed in the keys and gunned the engine, tearing off down the road without even closing my door. I got one glance through the rearview mirror. It was on the road, watching my car fading into the distance, its eyes unmoving and its grin frozen. I didn't stop the car again until the sun rose. Mr. Dental's glass hits the floor. He's frozen, breathing deeply, shuddering occasionally. I suggest that we take a break, continue our interview tomorrow. But he waves the question away. He doesn't seem to notice the glass shattered at his feet. Over the coming days and weeks, sleep became a fantasy beyond my grasp. Every time I closed my eyes, it was there. I began to see it everywhere I went. Never clearly, never for more than a moment, but it was there. I wasn't eating. I couldn't concentrate on my work. So sure was I that if I let my guard down for a second, it'd be there. The fear that it was following me became too much. I became obsessed, simultaneously frantic, defined, and terrified to encounter it. Carol could only watch helplessly as my terror consumed me. This continued for far too long until eventually, I found it again. A soft clicking can be heard as Mr. Dental shifts in his seat. Three years had passed since my encounter with the grinning man. I had long since lost my job. I would rarely leave my study, working feverishly into the night to uncover further clues on the specter that haunted me. A tapping at my window snapped me from my work. Three slow beats, too rhythmic to be natural. Mr. Dental beats the table with his knuckles for emphasis. I would have no doubt ignored it if it weren't for one factor. I was on the second floor, with no trees near this side of the house. The blinds were down. I couldn't see out. My heart began hammering as I edged towards the windowsill, pen still in hand, reaching slowly for the string to raise the blinds. With a deep breath, I grabbed the string and heaved the blinds open. Nothing. No bald face. No staring eyes. No fixed grin nothing. I fell back into my chair. What I expected, really. I seem to recall I laughed, until there came a piercing scream from downstairs. Adrenaline fired in my veins as I leapt to my feet as the scream came again. Carol. Without hesitation, I wrenched the door wide and charged downstairs, calling out, shouting her name, wielding my pen like a dagger. Through the living room, empty, down the hall, silent, into the kitchen, into a scene of nightmare. The lights were on, bright, too bright, illuminating everything in perfect detail. She was lying on her stomach, but she was face up. Her head had been turned until it faced fully backwards, her wide eyes staring straight at me and a grin on her face, a locked grin that was far too wide, far too big. She was dead. Yet her eyes pierced me. The grin taunted me. I screamed and I screamed and fell to my knees, unable to move, to breathe, to think. I couldn't approach her. I didn't dare touch the corpse that had once been my wife. I turned and stumbled into the hall, crashing through the living room door where the television was still playing, filling the room with laughter. The sound consumed everything, laughter constant, unchanging, driving me into a fit of blind panic. With a roar, I leapt up, intent on smashing the infernal machine into a million pieces, but something stopped me. It was off. The television was black, dead, yet the laughter still echoed through the room, growing louder and more unnatural with every second. I lifted the box and slammed it into the floor again and again, shattering the glass, splintering the wood, and yet still the laughter did not stop. Hands bloodied, Tears streaming down my face, I plunged back into the hallway, tearing up the staircase to my study for the phone. desperate to call someone, anyone, for help. The room was as I'd left it, desk messy, lights dim, blinds raised. Except that a face now stared through the glass, white, long, with gaping black eyes too far apart that locked into mine and didn't waver. It was grinning, a fixed grin that was far too wide, far too big. No human could make that expression. Mr. Dental is in a frenzy. He strains and tears at the handcuffs that bind him to his seat. I grab my dictaphone and leap to my feet as he manages to upturn the table, sending papers flying across the white floor of his cell. It's a long while before he calms down enough to continue. I couldn't look away. It was there. He was there. As he'd always been. Watching me. His face was seared into my eyes. I would never be free of his torment. Unless I. I stood up again, locked my gaze with a demon. The pen was still in my hand, and I plunged it into my eye. First one, then the other. Agony raged as an inferno as I fell to the floor, succumbing to the blackness. Now I am free of ever seeing the creature again. Mr. Dental's head slumps in exhaustion and his sunglasses drop to the floor. Then he begins to laugh, slowly, quietly, growing louder and louder until he raises his head and stares at me with eyes that are no longer there. <laughs> I back away from the chair, from the man chained to the center of the room, turning for the door. As I slam my fist into it, I glance down at one of the blank pages that had just been thrown to the floor. Not blank, just upside down. The other side was now revealed. A charcoal sketch of a face. It was grinning. A demonic visage. No human could make that expression. As the door was opened from the outside, I stumbled out. Throwing one last look into the cell I had just left, Mr. Dennel was still laughing maniacally, the chains holding him to his chair. The floor littered with hundreds upon hundreds of blank pages, which were now revealed to be drawings, all drawings, all of one thing. A face with a locked grin that was far too wide, far too big. I shuddered and slammed the door closed.) <laughs> Of the spasmic
5: seas, between blurred faults
1: (laughs) of earth and sea. sea. The time overflows of the the naked life, between blurred faults of earth and sky. sky. So...
0: Out your window at night and gaze upon the horrifying smile of the grinning man. And finally, I'm going to share this story with you. It's called Day of (laughs) Demands. It all started long ago, and has since happened once a year. This horrible night. It was the end of October. I was eager for a new month. Who really knows why? Anyways, I was walking home that night from a friend's house. It was around 5 o'clock, so there was sufficient light to guide my way. Even though I lived 20 minutes away, the sky seemed to dim rapidly, I picked up the pace after noticing this. Cold wind blowing against my back, as if urging me along. After what seemed forever, I found myself in the safety of my home unharmed. I jolted around my house for some reason still a little paranoid from the walk home. Regardless, I had nothing to fear. So with a cup of coffee in my hand, I settled down in front of the television. The sky was consumed with a blanket of darkness. The trees soon became looming, shadowy figures in my yard. I tilted my head to the side so I could get a better view of the sky perhaps to see some stars or the moon. However, there was none. It was as dark as an abyss. This did not worry me. At least, not as much as what happened next. I looked out of the window and saw something moving swiftly across my driveway. I jolted straight out of my chair, and pulled the curtain far away from the window. It was gone. My imagination, I told myself. I went to go sit back down, but the figure once more caught my eye. The next thing I knew, I had gone into total shock. door had been knocked on. I hobbled over to the door. Fearing the outcome of opening, I hesitated. One minute had passed, and once more, the sound of knocking filled my ears. Ever so slowly, I reached for the doorknob, and when it had met my hand, I reluctantly turned it. The sight was horrifying. Pale white wrinkly skin dotted with eyes that appeared to be similar to black holes. A short yet ominous figure it was. The voices coming from it was high-pitched and nearly a screech. I was unable to hear the Horde figure due to its screech also taking on characteristics of a mumble. For a short while, I stood there in awe, not knowing what to do. Once more, the creature muttered something under its breath. Once more, I stared at it. This time, nearly falling backwards as I walked in reverse with choppy steps, mouth wide open, I awaited a response. Now the creature seemed fed up, shouting,
14: Give it to me!
0: My eyes became as wide as dinner plates, With fumbling hands, I made a desperate attempt to slam the door shut. But the creature soon outspread its hands and prevented the door from any further motion. It screamed. Give
13: it to me me right right now. now!
0: After another delay, a long hand emerged from the beast as it firmly grasped its head. I cringed in fear, for it was removing its skin and I could barely look. Beneath was a small, round-eyed, pale-looking person-like character. I passed out. The next morning I woke up, and all of my candy, sweets, or any sort of treat had been removed from my possession. I called my friend who lived down the street and told him about these events. I told him how irregular and terrifying this first-hand account was. He seemed a little unsure of my story. He had said something might be wrong with me. I told him I would call this day the Day of Demands due to the Demanding Ghost. And then my friend told me this occurs every year. However, I think he was a little scared for he changed the subject and started talking about this weird thing called Halloween. The stories you've just heard. John Grills from Creepy. Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold. Haley from The Murder Road Trip Podcast. Chris from The Mad Scientist Podcast. Kara and Stu from Bless This Mess. Lily from 36 Times. Carol from Cold Case Notes. Scott from the podcast Fairy Tales. For Unwanted Children Carla From There Might Be Cupcakes Mandy From The Moms and Murder Podcast Cambo From True Crime Island Dennis Cira From The Evil Podcast And finally A special thank you to Sammy From The Encrypted Podcast Who had the idea to get everyone together To produce this show A huge thank you to Beck the producer of the Minds of Madness, for working her magic by editing and assembling this show. And I'm Tyler from the Minds of Madness, wishing you a safe and happy Halloween.